Welcome to the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast, episode number 14. My name's Christopher Luft. I'm one of the co-founders at Lima Charlie, and I will be your host. On today's episode, Dr. Gerald Osier takes us through the last couple of weeks in cybersecurity news, and we sit down to talk with Walter Haydock, the founder and CEO of StackAware, a cyber risk communication platform. Walter's approach to getting his startup off the ground is one that I think every aspiring cybersecurity entrepreneur would benefit from listening to. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jerry, and this is the Simply Cyber Report, powered by Lima Charlie, the top cyber news stories you need to know about right now. Threat actors are hiding malware execution under another legitimate Windows support binary. The Warfault.exe program is used for Windows error reporting, but unknown threat actors were recently seen in the wild executing remote access tooling on victim machines and hiding behind it. Presumably delivered through typical phishing attack vectors, stage one of this attack binds victims opening an ISO file that launches the Warfault binary. Now, Warfault uses faultrep.dll normally, but the threat actors use a DLL sideloading technique to hook the fault rep with a malicious version. This version of the DLL has custom APIs that call system function 032 from the advfe32.dll. This is an undocumented function used for RC4 encryption. K7 security labs that published the research manually decrypted the payload and found it to be a widely available remote access trojan called Puppy Rat. Victims believe Warfault is running, but it's Puppy Rat, which is attempting to make a C2 connection. At time of reporting, the C2 infrastructure is not up right now. From the land of finally, AWS has announced all S3 buckets will automatically be encrypted by default. The utility is touted as being completely transparent to consumers and users of S3 buckets. As objects are put into the bucket, they are given a unique key, which is used to encrypt the data alongside an encryption process with a root key. The ability to encrypt with customer-provided keys or AWS key management services keys still remains a viable option. Note, this is a server-side encryption only, and client-side won't be affected by this update. But if you'd like to encrypt client-side, client libraries such as Amazon S3 Encryption Client is available from Amazon. It's important to note that existing S3 buckets will not retroactively have encryption applied on the server side. So if you want to take advantage of this feature and functionality, you will have to manually intervene and enable it. Threat actors continue to leverage what works best, and in this case, the effective blend of malicious Android apps, spyware, and financial creds. SpyNote is a dangerous and sophisticated piece of malware that is being actively developed and used to target Android devices. It has the ability to track a user's location, steal sensitive information, record phone calls, and remotely manage the device, among other capabilities. It appears that the latest variant, SpyNote.c, has been specifically designed to target banking applications and impersonate well-known financial institutions. It is being sold to individual actors through a Telegram channel and was even made available as open source on GitHub at one point. It's important for Android users to be aware of this risk of spyware and take steps to protect their devices, such as only downloading apps from reputable sources and installing a security app to monitor that. I'd also want to point out that security practitioners should share with their end users the risk of Android apps 
being downloaded from random places, and they should tune their EDR solutions in BYOD environments to help detect related network traffic to this malware. From the office of who didn't see this coming, the New York City Education Department has blocked access to ChatGPT, an artificial intelligence powered chatbot that can generate highly lifelike and cogent writing on its devices and internet networks due to negative impacts on student learning and concerns regarding the safety and accuracy of content. Created by OpenAI, ChatGPT, which has taken the internet by storm, uses machine learning to come up with custom responses to specific prompts, including historical facts, writing in different styles, and logical arguments with almost perfect grammar. The chatbot does have limitations. It can produce inaccurate conclusions or offensive language, but a lot of individuals and students are using it to write papers, do homework, and essentially eliminate the learning process for themselves without any negative ramifications. Microsoft has announced that extended support for all editions of Windows Server 2012 and Windows Server 2012 R2 will end on October 10th, 2023. Now this is a long ways out there, but with system development lifecycle and budgets, you want to be aware of this. This is absolutely a drop dead date as Microsoft already gave a five-year extended support from the original end of life date in 2018 so businesses can make the transition. Once the end of extended support is reached in October, Microsoft will no longer provide technical support or bug fixes for any issues that may impact the stability or usability of servers running these OSs. Now, customers who do wish to keep their on-prem Windows Server 2012 servers running and receiving security updates will have options. They can either upgrade to Windows Server 2022 or purchase extended support updates, ESUs, which will provide them with up to three more years of security updates and renewable every year until October of 2026. This will have a cost associated with it though. Alternatively, you can migrate your database and applications up to Azure Virtual Machines, which will also provide them uh, with you know, extended support updates for three years after the end of the support, essentially moving off of the 2012 server operating system. It's important for customers to be aware that running apps and data on unsupported versions of Windows Server creates significant security risks. As vulnerabilities are discovered, as exploits are written, if they're not being patched, you're just increasing your attack surface. I do want to uh, point out that extended support updates for Windows Server 2008 R2 will reach end support on January 10th, 2023, which would be tomorrow as of recording this. So if you are running 2008 R2 in your environment, you are definitely at risk. I know many an IT director has kicked the 2008 R2 and 2012 server upgrades down the road because of how big a lift it is and how it can impact certain applications, but the clock has run out and it's now a cyber risk issue. Remember to check out simplycyber.io slash streams to get longer form, deeper dive cyber threat briefings every weekday morning. I'm Gerald Dozier from Simply Cyber. Consider yourself armed with knowledge. Up next, my interview with Walter Haydock, founder and CEO of StackAware. Hey, Walter, thanks for being here with us on the show today. Thanks a lot. Appreciate the invitation. 
Yeah. Um, to get started, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us what your company does? Yeah, sure. So my name is Walter Hadock, and I'm the founder and CEO of StackAware. And StackAware is a company focused on managing risk in software supply chains. So the company does three main things. One is prioritize vulnerabilities or uh, from a risk-based perspective. Two is communicate about their exploitability uh, to both internal and external stakeholders. And then three, it helps to manage and analyze software built of material, of which we'll talk a little bit more. But uh, SBOMs, as they're known, are, are an emerging tool for managing supply chain risk for technology companies. Very cool. So uh, on your website, you talk about the Common Vulnerability Scoring System or, or CVSS. Is this the sort of old way that people would sort of um, measure risk inside of an organization. Can you explain a little bit about that? Sure thing. Yeah. So the, the CVSS is a standard that's been around for a while. I would consider it to be the industry standard for, for measuring risk with vulnerabilities. And the unfortunate problem is that one, it explicitly says, do not use this to measure risk. And, and two, it, it's also not especially good for the, the task uh, that it that it purports to do, which is to measure um, the severity of individual vulnerabilities. So again, uh, the CSS was created by a nonprofit organization called First. I have, I have nothing against them. I actually participate in one of their working groups, and you know I've had constructive conversations with uh, with the First folks throughout. So you know it is it is a well intentioned um, effort that they that they put together, and and over time it's it's just started to show its flaws, um, the main one being that it's it's a completely arbitrary system. So essentially, the way you generate a CVSS score is you'll input factors related to the likelihood of exploitation of the vulnerability, such as the attack complexity or the attack vector, whether you need to be physically present or you can exploit the vulnerability over network. And then it'll also take information about the impact of exploiting that vulnerability. So, for example, what are the confidentiality, integrity, and availability impacts of a successful attack against that vulnerability? So, the, the problem is that all these things are very qualitative. They're essentially, for most categories, you can respond none, low, or high. And, you know, there's a lot of research out there that shows people have widely differing opinions of what low or high means. and um, it just makes it very difficult to communicate effectively about vulnerabilities. And then also additional problem is that it's on a, a, a zero to 10, but effectively what, you know, approximately one to 10 scale. And that implies that the worst vulnerability ever can only be 10 times as bad as, as kind of the, the most benign vulnerability. And, and we just know that's not true. You, you can look at the example of, of log four shell, which was a very serious open source vulnerability disclosed in late 2021. And, and that basically, you know, had uh, people saying that the internet was on fire. That's a literal quote. I forget it was, where it was from. Uh, but there are hundreds of thousands of, uh, of other known vulnerabilities that don't have people making those claims. So I should just give you an idea of, of some of the issues there. I'll, I'll pause and turn it back to you if you have any follow-on questions on that. 
Uh, yeah, no, I think that explains it pretty well. And I think that's a common pattern that we see in technology, you know, uh, as as the industry matures and the problems evolve, existing solutions kind of don't often keep up. So what is what is the solution or the next version of this kind of risk uh, evaluation system look like? Yeah, so the CVSS, it, it claims it doesn't measure risk, but the inputs suggest that it is trying to measure risk, which, which to me is slightly confusing. Uh, because risk in, in any sense, but specifically in cybersecurity, would be uh, comprised of the likelihood of something bad happening or the annual likelihood or, or annual uh, recurrence of something bad happening times the severity of something bad happening. And we know this intuitively from hurricanes, from earthquakes, from, from things like that. We've got pretty well-developed systems for measuring that risk for natural disasters, for example. Now, in cybersecurity, applying the same concept is uh, challenging and sometimes controversial uh, for, for some folks. Many will say, oh, you, you can't measure, you know, you can't predict the likelihood of, of something happening or, you know, oh, it's impossible to know what the effects of a, of a data breach would be. And I, I'm skeptical of, of those claims, and, and I'm putting my money where my mouth is by, by showing how you can develop a formula or an algorithm that will predict these types of things, so that will predict the, the ultimate you know, outcome, the, the risk over a period of time. Now, I can't tell you that you know, XYZ hacker is going to exploit ABC vulnerability on this day. I think it's you, know, you, you should you should do claims such as that with skepticism, but you can say over a period of time, over a year, over a ten year period, you know, if you have these vulnerabilities and you have these assets with these data values, you're going to suffer this amount of loss in, in financial terms. So I think that's a reasonable thing to say, and we are. Um, I, I'm surprised that in 2023. We are we're still kind of having the early stages of the debate over whether that is even feasible to do, because uh, I think it, it's quite clear to me that it is. And we do it in many other areas as well. Um, so it, on your website, it says that Stackware uses a modified version of the exploit prediction scoring system. Is this the mm -hmm. underlying feature of how you're trying to predict these risks? Yes. Yes. So the exploit prediction scoring system is created also by FIRST, that nonprofit organization. And what it is, it is a data-driven uh, machine learning model that uses information about vulnerabilities, including their CDSS score, mainly the, the inputs. I think that the inputs into the CDSS formula are, are, can be useful. Uh, the, the numerical output from CDSS can be challenging to interpret. But uh, it takes things like that. It takes uh, the presence or absence of exploit code being publicly available. So if you can go and download an exploit for a vulnerability, that's probably suggesting that it's more likely to be exploited than if you can't find that on the internet. And then it also takes data from, from data partners regarding real-world exploitations of vulnerabilities in the wild from intrusion detection and prevention systems. So it can backtest its predictions um, you know, over time, it can view its uh, the, the results and compare those to real-world events and determine how effective it is. And essentially, what it does is it, it spits out a probability over the next 30 days that a given vulnerability will be exploited. 
So that's that's an incredible step up from you know high uh, high severity or, or you know you're saying it's it's critical because the those qualitative descriptions are very hard to interpret. But if you know oh this part this vulnerability has a twenty percent probability of being exploited in the next thirty days, that's information that you can do something with. You know that. <laughs> You know, it's 20 times as likely as, as a vulnerability with a 1% chance of, of exploitation, of being, uh, of being exploited. So um, that, that's an excellent basis to begin with. StackAware actually will allow other sources of um, exploitability predictions to be ingested. We're not exclusive to EPSS, but out of the box, it allows you to uh, use EPSS uh, because that's a freely available data set. So, okay. yeah. So what I do is I take EPSS and I apply a formula that's that's uh, available publicly. It's, that's an open source formula, and essentially extend that to to a year long period, a 365 day period. Because in my opinion, that's the most important timeline for making decisions because that's how budgeting cycles are done. Um, you know, that's how kind of everybody operates is on an annual cycle. So. That is that is my take on EPSS and how we use it. And ultimately, this is all about the the concept of cyber resilience, right? Like we're not going to be able to stop all the attacks all the times, no matter how much resources we have. And in the real world, we probably don't have unlimited resources. So this kind of information can help a company uh, make good strategic decisions about where to put the efforts to build a better security posture. Yeah, a hundred percent. So if you look at any given network, you'll probably find tens or potentially even hundreds of thousands of known vulnerabilities in that, in that network if you run any sort of scanning tool on it. So if, if we could just fix everything immediately, then I would say do that. I mean, that's, that, that's kind of the easiest way <laughs> to go about it, but that's not a realistic approach in a modern economy and modern business. There are downtime requirements a lot. You know, the vast majority of these vulnerabilities are in code that you didn't write. If the vendor hasn't put a release out fixing it, or if it's an open source project that hasn't put a release out, you know, that's there, there's not much you could do except rewriting the code yourself, which kind of defeats the purpose of using open source. And then in reality, only about 5%, I'd say potentially less of all known vulnerabilities can be exploited in a given configuration. They were likely exploited at some point, but as far as you running a business are concerned, only 5% of those are, are really presenting some sort of risk. So being able to prioritize the ones that do present a risk to you uh, is, is critical. And then also, um, you're going to want to determine what the financial cost of your cybersecurity program is and how much um, risk it's mitigating in, in dollar terms so that you can apply resources in an effective and logical manner. So you're not underspending or overspending, you know, it potentially could happen. Unlikely, but you know, it could happen in cybersecurity. Mm -hmm. Interesting. In in earlier you mentioned the software bills and materials or S bombs, which I love. <laughs> can you explain what that is and, and how that plays into uh, analyzing risk? Absolutely. So a lot of the state of the art for third party and vendor risk management is based on security questionnaires and uh, things like SOC 2 or ISO 27001 reports. 
And those are, those are very qualitative ways of evaluating the security of another organization that you're doing business with that might be storing your data. And a lot of people just use that as a checkbox to say, okay, this vendor's good. They have a SOC 2 report. So my stance would be similarly to evaluating vulnerabilities, having a qualitative approach is, is necessarily less sophisticated than having a quantitative approach. So that's where, uh, partially, where, where software bills of material would come in. Now, I'll caveat that by saying software bills of material only represent a narrow slice of a total security posture for an organization. It tells you, you know, what components are in a piece of software. You know, it doesn't tell you, are they running, uh, you know, endpoint detection and response? What is their, uh, what is their vulnerability incident response policy? What is... You know, what are their uh, safeguards with respect to data security? Those types of things can't be reflected in software bills of material, and I fully uh, acknowledge that. But software bills of material will tell you the components in a given piece of software. And that can be incredibly helpful because, for example, during the Log4Shell vulnerability crisis, the state of the art involved essentially taking a spreadsheet uh, and writing down some questions on it and emailing it to 900 of your vendors, and then every vendor was bombarded with different formats of spreadsheets um, during during the crisis and would respond as best they could while at the same time dealing with, with the vulnerability trying to fix it. So if you have a properly updated and analyzed software bill of material, as a customer of software, you can answer that question yourself. You can say, oh, do they have this version of Log4j in, in their software uh, bill of material? And then uh, the, the, I guess the good and the bad, the good for me, the bad for uh, SBOM users is that you're not quite done yet. The, the key thing is that only 95 or only 5% of vulnerabilities in any given configuration are exploitable. So if you were to scan a, an SBOM and you would see it, it would light up like a Christmas tree because you'd have all these non-exploitable vulnerabilities in it. So that's where, um, a format called the Vulnerability Exploitability Exchange comes into play. And what, what my platform does is allows you to track um, responses from the vendor or from, from various parties, you know, they could be security researchers or whatnot, about describing vulnerabilities in a software bill of material uh, to say whether, you know, yes, it is exploitable, no, it's not, and here's the reason why. And then when you take that information into the risk management formula that I described earlier, you can create a, a constantly updated picture of the risk of a vendor or all of your vendors at a given time. And if they hit a certain threshold, uh, you know, they do something that you've agreed that they won't do in your contract, then you can, you can reach out to them. You can, uh, you know, ask them to remediate a certain vulnerability or, or, you know, provide more information on it. And it takes what's going on right now. This is this is all happening, but it's happening in a very analog manner. And StackAware allows you to automate that process um, and and remove a lot of the toil from it. Very interesting. Uh, so S bombs are essentially machine readable. Uh, it's a machine readable format that software producers can publish alongside of their software to let their customers know what the dependencies are, and then those customers can then use that format to determine the risk of having that software in their supply chain. 100%. Very cool. Um, one of the things I found most interesting uh, when I was reading about you 
is uh, the approach you've taken to finding product market fit. Your company's rather unique, at least in cybersecurity. Uh, can you tell us about how you got Stackware off the ground, particularly in using Xano and Bubble and, and how you might have used them to leapfrog some of the early hurdles that a fledgling tech company might face? Sure thing. So I taught myself how to code in, in Python. And you know I'll admit that I'm not great at it. I did build an early prototype for Stackware using Python and running it on Azure. And I just found that the speed of development was so slow, uh, especially as a one-man show, that I had to find an alternative solution. And I had looked at no-code solutions previously. And you know, I, I went back and, and, and really wanted to, to conduct more due diligence on the space. And I, I eventually settled on two solutions. One bubble for the front end is that's a relatively well-established platform. It's been around for more than 10 years uh, for no-code development. It's basically drag and drop. It allows you to uh, rapidly build a user interface and you can build a full app with it as well. With, with StackAware though, the way I wanted to design it was to make it enterprise ready from the beginning. So I, instead of using bubble to store data and, and do the business logic, the back end of my application is housed in another no-code app called Xano, which allows you to build APIs very rapidly. And um, essentially, what I've been able to do is, is, is rebuild my app in, in kind of a matter of months and um, you know, quickly iterate. Once I speak to a customer, I can, I can make the changes myself um, in, in Xano or Bubble. Um, you know, if I have a new development or, you know, a new idea or whatnot, I can rapidly try it out um, and, and kind of bring it to fruition in a way that's usable using those no-code tools. And now the, I spoke with Ross, your colleague, about, you know, some of the potential challenges there. There are some concerns about uh, security. I, I'm completely, completely transparent about my use of no-code. I don't try to hide that at all. Um, and also, I've done some diligence on, on the platforms that I use. You know, I, I view this as an interesting topic myself. I think that low and no code is going to be the future of product development. It's going to separate um, the, the kind of uh, tasks that, that developers do on a daily basis from even more so from the product related uh, things, you know, determining what the customer wants, what the desired business outcome, those types of things. So. I'd like to think that I'm on the I'm on the leading edge of innovation when it comes to application development. Yeah, no, I find it fascinating, and I do agree with you in the sense that uh, you know your expertise is in cybersecurity and not necessarily in development. Uh, so if you were working with like an outsourced developer or something, I think that the gap there is is bigger, and there's more risk involved than using a tool whose which is developed by software engineers that's meant for other people to use. I think there's just um, less room for miscommunication and uh, more solid foundation. Very interesting. Exactly. And, you know, if I ever go the code heavy route, then having a, a prototype that works, that, that's in production, that's much easier to hand off to a development team and say, hey, hey rebuild this than, uh, you know, have some wireframes or a user story or anything. Yeah, and you've already hashed out the the business logic, you know, done that quick feedback cycle with customers and really figured out how to solve the problem properly. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so when I book a guest for the show, I often look at their LinkedIn and try and get a sense of how they came to be where they are. Uh, always interested in how people found their way into cybersecurity. Um, it looks like right out of high school, you went to the Naval Academy and completed a Bachelor of Science. What was behind that decision and what was the experience like? Yeah, so I wanted to go into the military from a pretty young age. I had a uh, my one of my grandfathers and then uh, his father, so my great-grandfather, both were Marine Corps officers. And I wanted to, to go into the Marine Corps for, for a long time and considered actually enlisting right out of high school, but uh, decided to go to the Naval Academy and uh, a common kind of graduation path. You have to go into the military, but about 20% of graduates go, go into the Marine Corps. So that seemed like a pretty pretty sure fit for me. And, uh, you know, lo and behold, I, I, I made it through and, uh, and, and arrived at, uh, you know, I arrived as a second lieutenant newly commissioned in, uh, in 2008. And how long were you in the Marine Corps for and what kind of work did you do there? Yeah, so I was in the Marine Corps for almost eight years and I was a ground intelligence officer. So I bounced back and forth between intelligence, kind of traditional military intelligence roles, and then also infantry roles. So I commanded a ground reconnaissance platoon and uh, was the executive officer for a reconnaissance company, as well as doing kind of traditional intelligence work. I remember reading uh, some snippet about how you use technology to reduce um, the uh, contact with improvised explosive devices. Can you touch on that a little? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of my first uh, experience with um, engineering, um, kind of at an applied level. What uh, what I did was it, the idea is not completely original. I I borrowed it from from other folks. But uh, essentially, when I was in Afghanistan with my platoon in 2011, what we would do is the point man, so the lead marine in a patrol would use a wrist-mounted GPS device to, he would turn that on at the start of the patrol and turn it off at the end. And what that would do is collect a, a cookie crumb um, trail of where every, every place that he stepped. So you could see on the map afterwards, um, you know, where a Marine had, had walked and we had a standard operating procedure do the high threat of improvised explosive devices that you would step in the footprints of the, the man in front of you. So you could be reasonably certain that, you know, everybody had been stepping uh, in the same place and, you know, assume everything goes well at the end of patrol, the patrol and you come back, um, you can see, uh, you know, over time and you can overlay these, you can, we would color code them by, by week. You could see patterns of movement over time. And the reason that this is important is uh, a great indicator of where a improvised explosive device, an IED, is going to be tomorrow is where did you walk today? Because uh, the, the insurgents that we were fighting would observe, you know, they wouldn't necessarily attack right away, but they would observe movement patterns and then, you know, expect us to repeat um, our, our motions uh, the next day. So we would use that to avoid setting patterns when patrolling and that kind of you know helped build my mindset about um focusing turning what i would call turning the map around looking at things from the adversary perspective um, and then also using technology to 
you know, help improve manual or analog processes because, you know, previously some folks have talked about sketching these things out by hand, you know, that's very hard to do with acetate. So, so automating um, drudgery away is something that, that I was a big fan of early on in my career. Very cool. Very important work too. Um, after the Marine Corps, you were a targeting officer for the National Counterterrorism Center or NCTC. I know it's probably a little bit sensitive, but can you talk about that at all at a high level? Yeah, yeah. So that was I was uh, I was detailed. I was essentially on loan from the Marine Corps to uh, the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, and I helped synthesize a variety of different data sources um, to make recommendations to to operational customers uh, about terrorism related issues. So uh, can't can't say too much more than that. But essentially, my uh, you know, my my interest in data driven approaches was was uh, furthered from my experience there, and being able to understand how you can use data to identify patterns and and also make predictions about future actions. Uh, after your time in the service, you did a whole bunch of things in the private sector. Um, was there anything in that time, any particular organization you worked for or mentor you had that, that really kicked off the idea that you were going to become an entrepreneur? Yeah, from, from working at a couple different software companies, I, I kept running into the same problem again and again. And, you know, my, just from what I had learned, I knew that if, if you run into that situation where you're like, man, this is, this is a really tough problem, then that's potentially the beginnings of a good business if you can, you can monetize it. So the, the problem that I was really running into was vulnerability overload from uh, whenever you conduct any sort of scan, whether it's on the application security side or the network security side, you just get flooded with all these vulnerabilities. And, and the state of the art was using uh, the common vulnerability scoring system to to prioritize and uh, you know determine wh whether and when you're going to fix something. So uh, that approach, after dealing with with it for for years, um, I, I said to myself, you know, I, I can't do this anymore. Uh, you know, I've been complaining about this enough, and I think I know a way to solve this problem. So it was really just getting beat over the head multiple times by the same problem that made me an entrepreneur because I said, you know, I, I, I'm done. I'm done dealing with this problem. I'll deal with a lot of other problems, but not this one. So I got to launch my own thing. So that's, that brought me here. Oh, that's great. That's they usually say the best thing to do is scratch your own itch. And that sounds exactly right. like what you've done. So uh, that's awesome. Right. Uh, so this last question is one that I ask of everybody and it can be as wide and narrow or narrow as you want. Uh, do you have any predictions for the future? Well, yeah, that is that is wide. As far as technology goes, I'll say that automation is going to that's really going to change a lot of things. So there's a lot of hype that's kind of playing out, uh, you know, being, as being justified on the AI side of things. And I use ChatGPT all the time for research and doing math and helping me you know, solve problems and things like that. So definitely a lot of Good things that will that will come out of that, but there's an even bigger opportunity. I think that's less talked about because it's less exciting. But on the automation side of things, 
there are going to be such huge advances in productivity due to just automating manual processes. And you're seeing this a lot on on the low and no code side of things, you know, uh, just dragging and dropping things from to different folders, uh, you know, parsing data, doing doing things that really don't require a lot of heavy deep tech, so to speak, but are just really burdensome to, to productivity in organizations. I think automation is going to really change the way people work. Now, <laughs> I think there, there are going to be some downsides to that because people whose jobs are focused on kind of repetitive white collar work, you know, those are those are going to be the ones I think that are going to be automated away the fastest. So, so you know, there have been predictions that the lower skill jobs would be the ones that would be impacted first. But actually, I think there's this this wide band of of white collar jobs, uh, maybe even maybe even most of them that are, are probably going to go away relatively quickly because of these data, um, you know, automation and integration and parsing solutions out there. So I think that's going to be huge change economically and and politically as well that uh, the, the world as as a whole is going to need to reckon with so that's that's one I'll, I've got another one but I'll, I'll I'll pause there yep follow up questions uh, no I, I agree with that assessment as well uh, we were talking about chat GPT and and just that it's it's not a replacement but it's definitely an augmentation that's gonna you know, one person will be able to do the work of four or five people kind of thing, which is going to eliminate some jobs in the near term. I believe that's correct. Yeah. And then my, my second prediction is, is focused on decentralization. I think that the internet, um, oh, I, I forget where this comes from, but the internet increases variance um, a lot. So, you know, if you had something that was really good, the internet makes it a lot better. If you had something that was really bad, the internet makes it a lot worse. <laughs> and you're going to see, you know, culturally, potentially even politically, uh, you know, people are going to associate with with like-minded folks. You see these in virtual communities already. And, you know, with the evolution of, of cryptocurrency, which in general, I'm, I'm bullish on uh, the use cases for especially Bitcoin. I think you're going to see a massive decentralization in terms of the you know economic and political structures that that we're used to, because if you look at the institutions, you know, the the technology they were based on was you know it's probably more than a hundred years old at this point, and things are moving very quickly. So I I think the future will be very exciting <laughs> in in all senses of the word. Yeah. Good or bad. <laughs> It'll be good interesting. Or, good and bad. Good and yeah. bad. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks a lot for the conversation, Walter. I really enjoyed it. It's great to hear about StackAware. Uh, I learned a bunch of stuff that I had no idea was a thing. So uh, I always take that as a good sign. Awesome. Well, I appreciate the time. And, uh, you know, if, if you're interested uh, in, in the company, for anyone listening, please reach out, stackaware.com. Happy to talk to you about you know my product and and also doing consulting engagements to help people get uh, get stood up on the platform. Okay, yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes too. Thanks again. Great. All right, thank you. And that is a wrap for this, the 14th episode of the Cybersecurity Defenders podcast. 
I want to thank everyone for tuning in and supporting the show. The feedback we've been receiving has been invaluable to guiding the progress as we learn and grow in this medium. If you have any thoughts, ideas, or criticisms, we'd love to hear them. You can send an email to defenders at limacharlie.io. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show or tell a friend about us. It would mean a lot to the team that is putting this all together. 